Well, this morning we're going to be carrying on uh, in our study through the book of Isaiah, and we've reached a fairly difficult point where I had to decide to either treat individual judgments of nations in consecutive weeks, so we'd be dealing with judgments for the next two or three months, or to lump it all together, uh, and so that's what I've done. So this morning we're going to be looking at chapters 13 through 19. So chapters 13 through 19, and we'll just we'll take our time and try to identify some of the highlights. If you have lunch plans, cancel them, and uh, you'll, be, you'll be quite, well, you may not be happy, but you'll be here until we're done. So Isaiah 13 through 19, I'll start reading and decide as I go if I'll read all of those chapters now, or how about just chapter 13? So Isaiah chapter 13, this actually sets the scene for the uh, subsidiary judgments against the nations that follow. Isaiah 13, 1, this is the word of God. A prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah son of Amos saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop, shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded those I prepared for battle. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of His wrath to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will rise like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, Like sheep without a shepherd, they will all return to their own people. They will flee to their native land. Whoever is captured will be thrust through. All who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives violated. See... I will stir up against them the Medes who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There, no nomads will pitch their tents. There, no shepherds will rest their flocks. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There, the owls will dwell, and there, the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will inhabit her strongholds, jackals, her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand. And her days will not be prolonged. Before we uh, begin to work through what God has to say to these nations, let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we would ask that uh, by your grace and through your Holy Spirit, you would guide us. Uh, to enter into uh, 
the spirit and the reality of what you have to say in these texts. Help us to see in a fresh way who you are. And in seeing who you are and in hearing your words, help us to know how we are to respond in our own uh, 21st century context. Lord, we know that you do not change. That you are the great king of all kings. You are the great God above all gods. And so we know that you have the same moral dispositions now that you had when you spoke through the prophet. So we pray that you will help us to align ourselves with you, uh, the God who is holy, holy, holy. I pray that you will purify us and, and prune us to be more fruitful. I pray, Lord, that you will not uh, abandon your work in our lives and in this place. Lord, again, we, we come to you because you know everything about us. Uh, we are utterly transparent before your gaze. And so we ask that you will search deeply through our hearts. Forgive us for our sin. Strengthen us and establish us by your grace. And even through your word this morning, draw us to know you better, to be more like Christ, and to be better equipped to represent you in this world. For those who are not here who wish that they could be here uh, due to sickness, Lord, we pray that your hand will be upon them. We pray that you will grant healing in body if possible. We pray that you are if best. We pray that you will minister to hearts and minds and spirits. And we pray that uh, wherever your people are today, whether they're here or even in our city, all of your children gathering in, in all the spots where they are, fill them with your spirit. Help them to worship you. Help them to know Christ better. And open your word wherever it is preached. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it, it is, of course, um, going to be shockingly difficult for me to actually have anything like focus uh, to work through all these chapters. We're going to be glossing over the majority of what could be said, maybe even sometimes, sadly, what should be said. So my goal is to give you a bit of a framework. You'll have to read these chapters on your own uh, in order to benefit from them maximally. I just want to draw your attention to a few themes, a few currents that run through it, chart a bit of a trajectory and hopefully end in the right place, which will be at the end of chapter 19. So there will be things that we won't say, things that we'll skip or gloss over, um, but also there will be a fair bit of reading at different points. Now, one of the things to understand is that these places, Philistia, Moab, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, these were as real to the prophet and to his people, as it would be today. You can almost imagine how actually fascinating you would find it if God gave you a prophecy about North Korea that you could read right now. And if God gave you a prophecy about Russia that you could read right now, the contemporary world, uh, or, or Peru, or Brazil, uh, or America, uh, it, it would be, it'd be quite fascinating to know at this time in history particularly what God's plan is for that nation just south of our border. And so to be given that prophecy, to be told, this is what God has determined, this is what he's going to do. And then even to have a message for Canada, because we'll get next week, Lord willing, to the message to Jerusalem. So God is revealing his plan for the nations as well as for his own people in uh, Jerusalem and Judah. So for us, again, we approach this as... ancient, historical, uh, nameless, faceless, faceless people in far-off exotic places. But this is not a fantasy world to Isaiah. This is his contemporary world. These are real nations, real people that he's addressing. That actually provides its own unique fascination for his original readers in a way which we don't fully understand today. Now, chapter 13 is about Babylon and In being about Babylon, it's also representative of all of the nations of the world. At this point, 
Assyria is the world power, but Babylon will eclipse Assyria in the future, and that's what Isaiah sees. Isaiah sees Babylon already ensconced in its power and splendor. And so he looks not only to the greatness and glory that will be Babylon, he also looks past it to the fall of Babylon through the Medes, which will be great. Now, when he approaches Babylon then, it's also through Babylon a framework to look at the entire world. Babylon is the strongest superpower. It's the world empire in this vision. And so to bring judgment against the world empire is, in a sense, to bring judgment to all lesser nations as well. Because Babylon's dominating the globe, all of the nations that are suppressed under it, all the nations that are brought under it, are affected by the judgment on Babylon itself. So what we'll see over the next number of weeks, just just several hopefully, is that God actually has a a plan of judgment for the entire globe. In Isaiah 24 through 26, we'll actually see how he he brings the entire world into apocalyptic judgment. But he begins with Babylon. In verses 24 through 27 of uh, the text that I read, sorry, that's going to be in just a moment. In the text that I read in chapter 13, it's very clear that God is going to be reducing Babylon, he's going to raise armies against them, and that they're going to be brought to nothing to a point of absolute terror where there's going to be catastrophic violence against them. These are some difficult texts, but the reality is what God is allowing to take place is God is allowing Babylon in a, in a simple sort of reciprocal form He's allowing Babylon to experience at the hands of others exactly what they themselves have done in warfare. So the judgment is one of reciprocal justice. So when God is saying, uh, your children will be destroyed, what he's saying is, what you have done to the children of others, you will experience yourself. I have allowed you power, and you have used your power to to plunder and rape and destroy. I will remove your power, and now there will be other people who will overpower you. In other words, the way you have used your agency, the way you have used your responsibility, the way you have abused other people in your power, now when your power is removed and that power is invested in others, they will treat you the same way. And so the judgment of God, and this is, this is a terrible thing, the judgment of God is this. As you have treated your neighbor, so you yourself will be treated. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join with them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Now, you will recall, of course, Isaiah hasn't said this yet, but you will recall because you know your Old Testament history, that Israel in the north is destroyed by the Assyrians. Uh, Judah and Jerusalem, the southern tribes in the divided kingdom era, are going to be destroyed by Babylon. The Babylonians are going to come in 586, 587 BC. Before that, there's a wave of of exiles, and Daniel's included in that, and so is Ezekiel. But then 587, 586 BC, uh, the temple's going to be destroyed, the Babylonians come in, and they get Babylonians cart off sort of a, a goodly number of Israelites. Very few are left behind. And so they're exiled. They're exiled into Babylon. It's the fulfillment of the climactic covenant curse in Deuteronomy 28. They're vomited out of the land. For 70 years, then God brings them back. And already here, you have this one verse, this one accent of hope. Babylon is going to be destroyed, but do not forget Israel, that the Lord will have compassion on you. You are going to go into exile, but he will choose you again. You've always been his choice, but now he's going to act positively on that basis, and he's going to bring you back to your own land. So throughout these texts, one of the things you need to look for is there are themes of hope. There are are mentions of glory. 
there are appeals back to promise. No matter how dark it is, no matter how horrible it is, you know, there are rays of light. In other words, it's almost as if God knows that, that in the midst of, of judgment and in the midst of chaos and pain and suffering and uncertainty and, and all of the things that we struggle with, he, he knows our frame and he has enough compassion on us even in those moments of darkness to say, here's a lifeline. Just, just, just grab onto this. And, and, and here, actually, frankly, verse 14, one is you don't know about the exile, you don't know how it's all going to work out. It almost does it make a lot of sense in the context? Because Babylon isn't even in the superpower yet, let alone to have conquered the church, Jerusalem and the temple and all of the rest, let alone to be in exile, let alone to be gathered back from exile. There's, there's, no, there's no historical context for this at all. It's just a future promise. Don't worry. One day Babylon's going to be judged and Israel, I'm going to bring you back. And you say, I don't that actually doesn't make sense to me right now. I'm worried about Assyria. Wait, wait, wait. I have to add Babylon to my list of worries? Yes, but don't worry. Because in the end, there's hope and a promise. And you don't see it today. And in the mercy of God, You're going through hard things now with the Assyrians. You can't even imagine the hardship that comes next, which is worse, with the Babylonians. But past that next event, which right now is unimaginable, there's hope. There's a lifeline. There's a ray of light, something to hang on to. Sometimes we want to know the future. Sometimes it'd be good to know uh, what's coming. Sometimes it's good not to know what's coming too. But no matter what it is, there's hope at the very end, no matter what, because of God. Verses 24 through 27 of chapter 14 say this. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned it, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord Almighty has purpose, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? This is one of those texts that you almost don't need to remember the context to be impressed by it. Uh, These are are one of those texts that I think about frequently. Frequently. For the Lord Almighty has purpose, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can pull it back? God has a plan for the world. God has a plan for the nations. God is absolutely sovereign in terms of his authority and right to rule. That is, he ought to be the king. He is the king. He has legitimate, lawful authority over all things. He is sovereign in terms of right and he is sovereign in terms of might. He is absolutely powerful. He is omnipotent. He is all strength. And and when he stretches out his hand to grasp something, when he purposes to do something, no one can annul it. No one can thwart him. No one can grasp his hand and pull it back or say, what are you doing? You know, the the way you, the way a little toddler reaches out for something that they're not supposed to have, and and you can just, you can just take their hand and pull it back. You know, they, they reach out to touch something. They ought not to touch something that's dangerous for them. You just reach out, you pull their hand back. What God is doing is God is saying, when I reach out my hand, who of you will grab it and pull it back? The Assyrians? No, the Assyrians on my mountain? I will trample them down. They're nothing to me. This is like Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage so furiously together and the people take counsel together? They oppose themselves against the Lord, the Lord of hosts. 
But what can the nations do when, when God stands up from his throne? What can the nations do when God reaches out his hand? What can anyone do to oppose the plan and power of God? And so again, in this little section, with all of the chaos, all of the judgments, all of the violence, it is God who says, do not forget, the world cannot spiral out of my sovereign control. You are not at the mercy of the Assyrians. You are not at the mercy of the Babylonians. You are at my mercy. Which is also actually a terrifying thing. But you stock that away. Because the God who is the God of mercy is also the God who is bringing all these catastrophic judgments on the people. But you just hold on to that for a moment. He's a God of mercy. How can mercy align with judgment and wrath? Can God be merciful even as He judges and pours out wrath upon the nations? The answer is given in a shocking way in chapters 15 and 16. So I'm going to read it because one of the things that we ought to recognize too is that we can't, we, we, we can hardly improve on you know, the message itself, right? So, so this is the Word of God. We'll read verses, chapters 15 and 16 because this was the message that the people heard. This was, in a sense, preached to them. Right? Isaiah wasn't originally a book. Isaiah was, a, was uh, oracles. It, it, was, it was delivered verbal messages. So this is what the people heard. So, so listen to the words of Isaiah. This is, this is your message. And because it's Isaiah's message, it doesn't count for my time. I'll, I'll take all the time I want after. Chapters 15 through 16. It's like having a guest preacher in the middle. A prophecy against Moab. Ar in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Kerr in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Dibon goes up to its temple, to its high places to weep. Moab wails over Nebo and Mediba. Every head is shaved and every beard cut off. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the roofs and in the public squares they all wail, prostrate with weeping. Heshbon and Elila cry out. Their voices are heard all the way to Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry out and their hearts are faint. My heart cries out over Moab. Her fugitives flee as far as Zor, as far as Eglath Shalishia. They go up to the hill of, uh, to Luhith, weeping as they go. On the road to Horanim, they lament their destruction. The waters of Nimrim are dried up and the grass is withered. The vegetation is gone and nothing green is left. So the wealth they have acquired and stored up, they carry away over the ravine of the poplars. Their outcry echoes along the border of Moab. Their wailing reaches as far as Iglaim. Their lamentation as far as Bir Elim. The waters of Diamond are full of blood. And I will bring still more upon Diamond, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab and upon those who remain in the land. Send lambs as tribute to the ruler of the land. From Selah across the desert to the daughter of Mount Zion. Like fluttering birds pushed from the nest. So are the women of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Make up your mind, Moab says. Render a decision. Make your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the fugitives. Do not betray the refugees. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. The oppressor will come to an end. And destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it. One from the house of David. One who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. We have heard of Moab's pride. How great is her arrogance of her conceit, her pride, and her insolence. But her boasts are empty. Therefore the Moabites wail, they wail together for Moab, lament and grieve for the raising cakes of Ker-Hereseth, the fields of Heshbon wither, the vines of Sibma also. The rulers of the nations have trampled down the choicest vines which once reached Jazir and spread toward the desert. Their shoots spread out and went as far as the sea. So I weep as Jazir weeps for the vines of Sibma. 
Heshbon and Elilel, I drench you with tears. The shouts of joy over your ripened fruit and over your harvests have been stilled. Joy and gladness are taken away from the orchards. No one sings or shouts in the vineyards. No one treads out wine at the presses, for I have put an end to the shouting. My heart laments for Moab like a harp, my inmost being for Ker Hereseth. When Moab appears at her high place, she only wears herself out. When she goes to her shrine to pray, it is to no avail. This is the word the Lord has already spoken concerning Moab. But now the Lord says, Within three years, as a servant bound by contract would count them, Moab's splendor and all her many people will be despised, and her survivors will be very few and feeble. 16.6 gives you the great cause for the judgment against Moab. We have heard of Moab's pride, how great is her arrogance of her conceit, her pride, and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. In the Western, in Western conservative evangelical circles, we do an extremely good job of categorizing sins into really heinous and not-so-bad and acceptable sorts of categories. And we tend to focus on external acts rather than internal attitudes and motivations so that we would we condemn very quickly external behavior. There are all sorts of things that we, we don't tolerate. And yet, a lot of people who have extremely prominent ministries in a North American context are known for their pride and arrogance. But as long as they're gifted, as long as they can fill seats, as long as they can fundraise, as long as they can speak well, as long as their, their podcast, whatever that is, is listened to whoever listens to those things, as long as there's big numbers, they get a free pass. God hates pride. If you actually thoughtfully read the viceless in the New Testament, but also the judgments of God, God hates pride. Pride and arrogance, let us be honest, is pride is a far far greater problem in the church than sexual immorality. Pride and arrogance in the church is a far greater consequence than a failure to tithe. Pride divides. Pride ruins. Pride creates political blocks. Pride makes it impossible for us to love people as we ought to love, which then means that pride will will by necessity create violations of the most important commandments. If we are proud, we will never be able to love God as we ought because we will never see God for who He is. Because if you see God, this is why God hates pride so much, is that if you have any concept of who He is, holy, 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 the seraphim, the burning ones cry. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. We say, no, I'll, I'll, I'll get a share of glory myself. Thank you very much. 
God, you're, 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 you're glorious, but, but there's room for me too. I'll, I'll carve out my little kingdom here in this world. I'll, I'll have my little niche, my little spot. So a little bit of focus on me too. And practically, even as Christians, even though we would never, we would never say this theoretically, we begin to just, just elbow God a little bit off of the throne we want to sit on. We would never say that, but the way we live our life demonstrates that it's true. I have heard of Moab's pride, how great is her arrogance, her conceit, her pride, and her insolence, piling up rough synonyms, in case you didn't get it. But her boasts are empty. This is not just Moab. This is me. When I'm rabbiting on in pride, when I'm, when I'm operating in arrogance, all of, all of that spin, all of that positioning, all of that, that jockeying for position, all of that, that sort of sometimes explicitly, sometimes you know, just sort of subtly trying to, to get some glory or whatever it is, all of the things that we try to do when we operate out of pride, it is all empty. It is all futile. It always will be. It can't be anything else. Because pride over-evaluates self. And so when you boast out of pride, you are always writing checks that you can't cash. It's not possible. You don't have the resources to back it up. And so all of her boasts are empty. Now look at chapter 15, verse 5, and then 16, 3 through 4. Chapter 15, 5, my heart cries out over Moab, her fugitives flee. And then 16, 3 through 4, make up your mind, render a decision, make your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the fugitives, do not betray the refugees, let the Moabite fugitives stay with you, be their shelter from the destroyer. Now this is fascinating, because you have to remember, these are, Moab is speaking here looking for help. And so here's Moab appealing, take care of us. Take care of our fugitives. Take care of our refugees. Be their shelter. You can understand people who are in this position wanting to be taken care of. You can understand people who are refugees asking for help. You, you, you can get that. But one of the things that I, I still, you know, this is The hardest thing sometimes is, is to see the opportunity that you have and, and what you ought to do in the time. Sometimes when you start figuring out it's too late. But what do you do in a world where today there are refugees fleeing oppression and violence who need shelter? And what do we do about that? Now, there's all kinds of issues I understand. But even in terms of allocation of foreign aid, do we do anything to try to take care of these people? Well, Moab begs for help with fugitives. And God will take care of them. Verse 5, In love a throne will be established. In faithfulness a man will sit on it. One from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. In other words, right in the middle, then, then next, we have heard of Moab's pride, etc. Right in the middle of this judgment, right in the middle of this, of this section, we're saying, look, you're going to be destroyed and there's going to be refugees. God says, I will stop the oppressor. I will establish my king. In other words, God has a plan and God has a program where when Messiah comes, the one in the line of David, the one who rules with justice and faithfulness and righteousness, there will be no more refugees because he will break the power of the oppressor. He will take care of the people by removing the threat to them because he will reign on David's throne. And so if that's what God is doing, and this becomes an ethical impulse for us today then, if God looks at the plight of refugees, even the guilty... 
That's essential here. They deserve judgment because of their pride, because of their arrogance, because of all the things that they're doing. They deserve this judgment. But even when they're judged, God has mercy and God calls the nations. When these people come to you war-torn, bleeding, bruised, and beaten down, even if they deserve it, have mercy on them. Mercy doesn't look at desert. Mercy doesn't look at merit. That's why it's mercy. Let God treat people with justice. He has sovereign control. But God's justice is never a license for us to be hard-hearted. Quite the opposite. God's justice calls us to alleviate pain and suffering wherever we can, whenever we can. And the reason God tells us to do that is because He is God. He has His own prerogatives that we cannot understand. He has authority that we do not have. He can use His authority any way He wants. We do not have that kind of authority to see the, the, the dispossessed and, and the downtrodden and the marginalized and the oppressed. We do not have the power to see that and to turn away. And, and, and I'll, I'll simply say this. One of, the, one of the greatest, to me, one of the greatest historical crimes... For which our nation can be judged was, was the intentional decision to allow unspeakable atrocity and genocide to take place in Rwanda. At the same time that lesser violence was, being, was taking place in parts of the world where there was oil. we mobilize our troops to go there. Well, a country that had no natural resources we wanted went up in flames of genocidal violence and we did nothing. Why? Because we had absolutely no care whatsoever for the value of a human life. We cared about oil more than people. And not even oil, because oil only has instrumental value. We cared about we cared about driving our cars to places we don't need to go. We cared about generating energy to produce things that no one on earth has ever needed and ever will need. Some of those barrels of oil were purchased with the blood of people in Africa. And I wonder if in a few years we'll look back at the Syrian refugee crisis and how little we did. And I'm speaking to, about myself personally. And read a text like this and say there have been times when there have been refugees who have needed help and we could have done something and didn't. Amazingly, the Moabites lament and grieve. That's not amazing. Verse 7, therefore the Moabites wail. They wail together from Moab, lament and grieve for the raising king. There's no wonder that they are grieving, that they're wailing, they're mourning. What's amazing is as the Moabites weep and wail, so does the prophet. Forgetting not that this message is not the words of Isaiah, it is the words of God. And so Isaiah is, is in a sense, the, the, the emotional response of Isaiah is God's emotional response in this situation. Verse 9, so I weep as Jazir weeps. I drench you with tears. The shouts of joy are gone. Joy and gladness are taken away. No one sings or shouts. Then, then, then feel this. You, you, can't, you can't read this. You, you have to feel this. Verse 11, this is, this is Isaiah speaking. But it is God's message coming through Isaiah. My heart laments for Moab. My inmost being. This is the shattered heart of God. Even in the midst of judging these people. Even in the midst of sovereign control. I have brought this judgment because, because of your pride. But my heart breaks because of your pride. 
My, my heart breaks that this has to be the end consequence. My heart breaks that you wouldn't repent, that you would persist in this arrogance, that, that, that you have to be judged, that, that you have to be destroyed, that, you go, that, you, that your refugees go scattering across. I've told my people to take care of you. I've told my people to have mercy. You have no idea how much my heart is shattered by this. My heart grieves over you. My heart weeps the inmost being of God. Laments when even an arrogant and proud people are judged. Isaiah has texts that speak of horrific anger and wrath. But here is a text that shows that even in the midst of all that anger and wrath, there is mercy and sorrow in the heart of God. And that is, of course, how we ought to be as well. Chapter 17 and 18 will be judgments on lesser nations. Cush in chapter 18 is as far south as uh, Israel had awareness geographically in Africa. So Cush is like sort of to, to the bottom of the earth. Uh, just south, it was really just south of Egypt. Uh, but that's as far as like the geographical domain of Israel's knowledge went at that time. So for there to be judgment against Cush is to say basically to the very end of the earth, to the bottom of the earth, God is still a sovereign control and he can bring judgment. Uh, just, I'll just draw your attention to two verses in chapter 17, verse 7 and 8. It's about judgment, uh, lots of judgment, about Damascus, but in 7 and 8. In that day, the people will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to the altars of the work of their hands. They will have no regard for their Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. Again, in the midst of judgment, again, judgment, 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 then, then a little bit of light. In that day, in that day, in that day, there's a future day coming when people will turn back to God. There's always this lifeline, just a fragment of a verse, just a phrase, just a small thought, that you're back to judgment. But don't worry, there is, in the end, repentance and faith in the Messiah that God is going to establish by his plan. Now, Cush in chapter 18 is the end of the earth. Now, look at the chapter, verse 7. Judgment, judgment, judgment. At that time, gifts will be brought to the Lord Almighty from a people tall and smooth skin, from a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech, whose land is divided by rivers. The gifts will be brought to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord Almighty. What you're being told here is, even to the ends of the earth, God is going to redeem people after judgment. Even at the bottom of the globe, people who, are, who, who, people who are aggressive and feared, they're going to bring gifts to God. They're going to come all the way up from the bottom of the earth to Mount Zion. That's how important it will be to know God to them. They will come streaming up from the ends of the earth, the most remotest places. They will come to worship God at His temple. They will come to honor Him. God, God is sovereign. He will judge all nations no matter where they are, but He will also draw all nations no matter where they are, and they will come to Him. It's an incredible vision. The entire globe will know God. And then chapter 19, a prophecy against Egypt. Verses 12 through 15 say, Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make, you, and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. The officials of Zoan have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of her peoples have led Egypt astray. The Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. They make Egypt stagger, and all that she does is a drunkard staggers around in his vomit. There is nothing Egypt can do, head or tail, palm branch, or reed. The people are deceived because of their cornerstones. And, and, and they're relying on their own wisdom. They're relying on their own building strategies. This is just a reminder, again, you can't help but read this, I think, as a Christian. And go, oh, yeah, well, yeah, you, you try to build your life on any cornerstone except God's cornerstone, and this is what's going to happen. But there is a cornerstone that God has, book of Psalms, picked up in several places in the New Testament. God's laying a cornerstone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. He will build, He will establish what His plan is on this cornerstone. And here again, this warning, look, you try to build your life on anything other than the cornerstone of God, and you will be deceived and ruined. Build your life on God's plan. Build your life around that architectural, engineering, structural anchor, which is Jesus Christ. Anything else will be destruction. 
in verses 19 through 22. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. You say, what is, who is this about? In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of the country, a monument to the Lord, a sign and a witness. He'll rescue them for their oppressors. He'll send them a savior and defender. He will make himself known. They will worship him daily. They will worship him. They will make vows and keep them. See, these are, these are the sorts of words that you only get about Israel. This is about Israel. When they were oppressed by Egypt, Egypt was, was struck with ten plagues and the army destroyed. But, but now, the same language that was used about Israel is being used about Egypt. God is going to treat Egypt the way he treated Israel. Now, Egypt's in slavery like, e- like Israel was in slavery, and God's going to liberate them just like he did his people. And just like Israel was led to worship and, and, and know God, he's going to lead Egypt out. He, he's giving Egypt an exodus. And his altar will be in the middle of their camp, just like it was in the middle of Israel. This prototypical oppressor of Israel is now being treated by God as if it itself were Israel. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, the Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Assyria is the, is the group that destroys Israel. Egypt is the group that had oppressed Israel and enslaved Israel. Catastrophic judgment was released on Egypt. Catastrophic judgment is being released on Assyria. But the last word of this cycle of judgments is this. Egypt will not be destroyed to be destroyed. Egypt will be the very people of God. Assyria will not be destroyed to be destroyed. Assyria will be the handiwork of God of God, and Israel will be God's inheritance. If God can bring these prototypical enemies, Egypt and Assyria, if He can reconcile them together and reconcile them to Himself with Israel, the argument would be from the greater to the lesser. If He he can bring the greatest enemies of His people to worship Him, He can bring any of the enemies of His people to worship Him. In other words, there is no nation, if it's Assyria and Egypt, there is no nation beyond the reach of God. God can reconcile all of the world together and bring them together. One of the incredible things with this, in, in this context, with Isaiah, the people want to hear that Assyria and Egypt are going to be ruined forever. The people want to hear that they alone will be exalted. The people want to hear that there's, there's hope and future for them. The people aren't interested in Assyria and Egypt being part of the plan and people of God the way they are. And yet, 
Assyria and Egypt and Israel, they're just equal partners in all of this now. Israel's just the third, the third member of the set. Yet, what about all the promises to Israel? What about that plan of God for Israel? Oh, that hasn't gone away. It's not less than Israel. It's more than Israel. It is too small a thing for God to only be the God of Israel. It is too small a thing for God to only be the God of Israel and the Egyptians. It's too small a thing for God to only be the God of of Israel and the Egyptians and the Assyrians. Oh, he has to be the God of the Canadians too. He has to be the God of the Germans and the Australians. God, he has to be the God of the Rwandans. He has to be the God of the refugees. There's only one God. But through the judgment, all these little lifelines, they end in this. All of the world reconciled to God, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their language, no matter their genetics or culture or time, place. You know, that vision in Revelation 5, people from every tribe and kindred and language, everyone together worshiping God because of what the Lamb has done. That's a global vision. God above the chaos, God judging the people so that he can bring them all in mercy and grace to himself to know him and to worship him. Well, may God help us to see it. May God also help us to see how we ought to live in this world uh, in the midst of judgment and with mercy. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.